I'm Edner Session. Welcome to this uh, program on uh, Genius. This is the second one we are doing. The first one um, essentially only discussed male geniuses. And Anne-Marie approached me afterwards and says, what about all the women? So then we decided we will have a second one. Uh, so Anne-Marie Levine, who is a member of our advisory board, who is a poet and a visual artist, has organized this meeting, and she will uh, run it. Uh, our next meeting, we may have a meeting in April, but I'm not sure yet, but we w our next scheduled meeting is on May 7th, and it will be on fear and anxiety. Thank you. It's a very uncheerful note on which to start, so, although truthful. Um, so welcome to this roundtable. Um, I'm Anne-Marie. I don't know if I was just introduced or not, but anyway. Um, I'm going to introduce the participants, but I want to tell you a little bit, as Ed did, about the origins of this particular roundtable. I don't usually do this. But the program was inspired by a previous Helix program called Understanding Genius. And as it happened, the sole woman on the panel didn't appear because her airplane was delayed. I'm not sure if this affected the discussion or not, but as I listened, I realized that genius was being understood as a solely male property. Much, it occurred to me, as the nude in painting or photography is immediately understood to be female. Genius was defined by the four male participants as a combination of IQ and accomplishment. I thought the definition accomplishment was a very poor one for the history of gifted women since they were so often prevented from accomplishing anything at all or from developing their gifts or from having their accomplishments recognized simply by virtue of being female. But sometimes they did succeed. So where, for instance, in that discussion was Marie Curie, who won two Nobel Prizes, her daughter, who won a Nobel in chemistry, Rosalind Franklin, who at the very least did much of the work that led to the understanding of DNA, not to mention Hedy Lamarr, noted movie star and physicist. I then realized that the geniuses mentioned were not only all men, but all scientists. Where were all the women, and where were the geniuses in the arts, male and female? My feminist streak was activated, and I am an artist. I spoke first to Darren and then to the executive committee, which does our programming, and they agreed that we should do two more programs about genius, one about women as genius and one about geniuses in the arts. The last one will happen next season. So I put together a round table of, and I swear this is an accident, four women and one man. <laughs> By intention, though, they are historians, an anthropologist, and an artist, all with a special interest in the historical evolution of the idea of genius. Okay, now I'm going to introduce the panelists in alphabetical order, and I'll ask you to raise your hands as I mention your names so that people will recognize you. Um, by the way, the complete biographies are on the website. I've shortened them. Joyce Chaplin is the James Duncan Phillips Professor of Early American History at Harvard University and Director of Harvard's Program in American Studies. She has taught at six different universities on two continents, a peninsula and an island, and in a maritime studies program on the Atlantic Ocean. Her interests are equally varied. A specialist in early American history, intellectual history, environmental history, and the history of science, Professor Chaplin is the author of 
An Anxious Pursuit, Agricultural Innovation and Modernity in the Lower South, 1730 to 1815. Subject Matter, Technology, the Body, and Science on the Anglo-American Frontier, 1500 to 1676. The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius. Round About the Earth, Circumnavigation from Magellan to Orbit. And with Alison Bashford, The New Worlds of Thomas Robert Malthus, Rereading the Principle of Population. She's also the editor of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, a Norton Critical Edition, and with Darren McMahon of Genealogies of Genius. Her reviews, pardon me? May I interrupt Sure. But not on your paper. It's online. This is what we do here. No, not always. It's such a waste Help? Of time. Just go on. Just go on. <laughs> um, you can stop with her mine. Her reviews and essays. <laughs> what? That's a compromise. You can stop with mine. That's, fine. <laughs> that's, that's true. Okay. Kathleen Keith. Kathleen Keith. Um, a professor of European history and secretary of the faculty at Trinity College, Connecticut. She received her PhD in history from Harvard with a year en passant at the Institut d'études politiques de Paris. Her undergraduate degree is from the Harvard Extension School, which she received while working at the Harvard College Observatory Astronomical Plate Stacks Library. Her research works to broaden the field of history by including within its purview previously neglected but rich subjects of study. Her first book, The Beast in the Boudoir, Pet Keeping in 19th Century Paris, helped create the thriving field of the cultural history of animals. This was followed by an edited volume, A Cultural History of Animals in the Age of Empire. A second major project addressed the complicated history of attitudes towards ambition in French culture. Her book on this subject, Making Way for Genius, The Aspiring Self from the Old Regime to the New, was published in 2012. Currently, she is writing A History of Geneva and the Alps in the 18th Century, provisionally titled Becoming Visible, A History of the Alps in the Age of the French Revolution. I will, I will assume that I have been introduced. I'm not sure. Um, I do three kinds of arts. Um, and Skip, pardon me? Yeah, oh, I guess I wasn't introduced. Um, I was a concert pianist and um, and then a writer, a poet, and sort of experimental fiction writer now, and a visual artist in many ways, principally digital at the moment. I paint on the computer, okay? <laughs> and I'm interested, you know, in the idea of genius, prodigies, etc. Darren McMahon is the Mary Brinsmead Wheelock Professor at Dartmouth College and was formerly professor at Florida State University. Born in Carmel, California and educated at the University of California, Berkeley and at Yale, where he received his PhD. McMahon is the author of Enemies of the Enlightenment, The French Counter-Enlightenment and the Making of Modernity. Also of Happiness, a History, which has been translated into 12 languages and was awarded Best Books of the Year honors for 2006 by the New York Times and many other uh, publications. Um, in 2013, McMahon completed a history of the idea of genius and the genius figure called Divine Fury, a History of Genius. He's also the editor with Ryan Hanley 
of the Enlightenment, Critical Concepts in Historical Studies, with Samuel Moyne of Rethinking Modern European Intellectual History, and with Joyce Chaplin of Genealogies of Genius. McMahon has taught as a visiting scholar at Columbia, NYU, Yale, the University of Rouen, the École Normale Supérieure, the École des Altitudes, and the University of Potsdam. His writings have appeared in such publications as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe. The list, the list is distinguished and as long as it is distinguished. <laughs> Susan Seymour is Jean M. Pitzer, Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Pitzer College, where she served as Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean of Faculty, as well as Coordinator of Women's Studies for the Claremont Colleges. Her research has focused on changing family and gender systems in India, specifically a longitudinal study in Bhubaneswar, India. Her books on India include The Transformation of a Sacred Town, Bhubaneswar, India, Women, Education, and Family Structure in India, and Women, Family, and Child Care in India, A World in Transition. Her article, Multiple Caretaking of Infants and Young Children, an Area in Critical Need of a Feminist Psychological Anthropology, won the 2004 Sterling Prize awarded by Society for Psychological Anthropology. In recent years, she has focused on two principal projects, Rethinking the Western Concept Attachment, it takes a village to raise a child, attachment theory, and multiple child care in Ellor, Indonesia, and in North India. In the edited volume, Attachment Reconsidered, Cultural Perspectives on a Western Theory. And two, on researching and writing a biography of her Harvard mentor, Cora Dubois, uh, titled Cora Dubois, Anthropologist, Diplomat, Agent. This is, this is a woman who did succeed in a man's world in every way. Dubois' distinguished career included groundbreaking research in the culture and personality movement of the 1930s, co-chairing a seminar with psychoanalyst Abram Cardiner on the impact of culture on psychological development at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, but apparently not this one, 1935 to 37, directing research and analysis for the OSS in Southeast Asia during World War II, and becoming Harvard's first tenure female professor in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Yeah. So now, um, I will sit down and become part of the panel, and I'll ask Darren to, to begin by saying. Thanks, Emory. Yeah, I, I'm the token male on the, on the panel. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I was actually fortunate enough to be at the last discussion about genius as well, and I, I thought I'd just begin uh, <clears throat> maybe by explaining uh, why we didn't talk about women a lot uh, in the last uh, section and why uh, the issue of, of, of women and genius is particularly vexed, but also particularly important. Uh, and that is uh, primarily because the very category of genius as a, uh, as a term that we use uh, uh, to measure uh, others is a, is a male category. It's invented by men for men uh, in the 18th century. Uh, and indeed, there's a long sort of prehistory uh, prior to that that's also profoundly gendered. The very word genius derives from the Latin geno genere, uh, which gives us words like uh, to beget, a gene, to father. Uh, and it's conceived by the Romans as <clears throat> a kind of guardian spirit uh, of all men, and exclusively men, uh, a god of birth. So there's a link to procreation, male procreation. Uh, there's an exclusive sort of uh, uh, gendering of, of the very term. Uh, and this is built uh, upon uh, over the centuries by kind of layers of, uh, of, of prejudice. But when the cult of genius emerges in the 18th century, um, 
this is even uh, further uh, reinforced. Um, somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century can say that, that women simply cannot uh, be geniuses. Um, and you see then in the, in the following century, in the 19th century, a whole kind of a scientific apparatus uh, designed to explain that. So um, you know, everything from measurement of, of cranial capacity to um, uh, the sort of psychological and medical uh, evaluations of women uh, explaining why uh, they don't have uh, the capacity for genius. There's an irony here uh, in that <clears throat> when the cult of genius emerges in the 18th century, the way geniuses, male geniuses are described is often in terms of certain feminine characteristics. So we, we associate genius with imagination. Uh, and uh, imagination in the 18th century is a kind of uh, dubious uh, notion. It's, 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 you know, it's the thing that, um, that women have when they read novels. It's one of the reasons why it's thought to be dangerous for women to read novels in the 18th century, because their imagination will start and it will lead them into trouble. Uh, but geniuses, of course, are people who are particularly imaginative. Geniuses are particularly sensitive. This is, they're talked about uh, in this way in the 18th century as having the special capacity to feel, right, to feel uh, for others, to get inside the hearts and minds of others. Uh, but this is also a way that, uh, that women are spoken about. Geniuses are prone to kind of fits of um, or convulsions, uh, the divine fury that, that Plato talks about. Women have hysteria, right? And so there's a way in which even at the same time that the concept is gendered in its origin, uh, certain feminine characteristics, as it were, are ascribed to women. Now, there's a whole history uh, of of, of, of women, courageous women, uh, that, uh, that Kathleen has written about, uh, who, who check this, uh, this prejudice, this dominant stereotype. So you have Gertrude Stein very famously saying, you know, I am a genius at the end of the 19th century, and there are people in the 18th and 19th who do that as well, combat the category. But I think that's just the place to start by noting what is in some ways an obvious uh, point, but profoundly important that the genius is a kind of profoundly gendered category to begin with. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can go from there. Anybody I, wants to talk about their work? If well, it's, I, I, I think it's gendered because it comes out of a long patriarchal tradition that sure. we are still dealing with. Absolutely. And uh, as an anthropologist, I think about different kinds of patriarchies a lot and try to think about the psychological effect on women in particular of different kinds of patriarchal institutions. And it doesn't surprise me at all that women are not generally categorized as geniuses, given that history. Sure, exactly. And, uh, that history cross-culturally, that history since, basically since we became agriculturalists. So right. I do a longer sense of history. Sure. <laughs> And it, it must be said that it was never a category that was about human equality of any kind. Right. Uh, I think that right. is the bigger problem, and yeah. that the long, long history of gender inequality is really one aspect of the difficulty of using genius nowadays. Um, I, I think genius is a great problem to contemplate um, in terms of deciding how much of our society really is democratic. Uh, that is founded on a fundamental idea about equality among all people. However, that might not be exhibited in everyday practice. It has to be an assumption about democracies. Well, genius doesn't exactly comfortably fit uh, mm. along those lines. 
And um, I think even when ideas about democracy are modified with ideas about meritocracy, well, some people have different or greater merits than others. How is that going to be adjudicated? Uh, and this is where designation of who is or isn't a genius very often maps onto uh, fundamental problems with democratic culture and fundamental um, asymmetries in terms of how we're willing to think about human merit. Yeah, that's... Oh, no. ahead, I, um, I'm also struck by uh, how at least some women who want to present themselves as geniuses adopt gendered terms of masculinity. Mm. Madame de Stael, Germaine de Stael, was accused of being masculine, but she also presented a little bit as masculine mm. in order to fit the, the type of a genius in a way. Um, uh, and by the same token, she expresses her genius in a kind of way that uh, privileges inspiration, but there seems to be a, um, a kind of model that women follow of being male in order to succeed in certain like professions. That's, a pos that's another idea. Although I don't think anyone thinks she's a genius, but a celebrity. They <laughs> <laughs> But from an anthropological point of view, uh, why are there female goddesses? They're goddesses, yes. but then there are no female geniuses. Well, I don't think... I'm, I'm not aware of uh, Indian culture generally talking about genius, but, but they would include... they probably would include women. Um, and the interesting thing about India is that it's both uh, a very patriarchal society in terms of the family system and the caste system, and yet you have all these female goddesses and women are considered potentially very powerful. And uh, heads of state. Uh, pardon? And heads of state. Oh, and, and have been heads of state, yes. And governors, et cetera, they have, have uh, certainly surpassed us in terms of uh, political leadership. But, um, yeah, I mean, Hinduism never became a, a monolithic uh, patriarchal system, and it, it gives a lot of openings for, for women. That is an interesting question, though, how, why you have Athena as the goddess of wisdom, uh, and yet not human embodiments. Uh, and, of course, that, that also brings to mind an, a dubious place of women in the discourse of genius, and that is as muse, right? Uh, uh, genius as inspiring figure, right? Even goddess who uh, gives to uh, the genius uh, his creative capacity. Uh, and that, you know, that, that's, there's a long history of the genius as, uh, as the uh, women as muse for genius. And then in the 19th century, you get in somebody like in Balzac or in, in Zola, um, uh, in, in Zola's novel, the L'Oeuvre, um, the, the, the figure of the mistress as at once kind of muse and then also uh, impediment to male genius, right? That distracts or uh, 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 siphons off uh, male kind of virile uh, intellectual energy and then mm -hmm. poses a conflict, right? That, that's uh, the conflict in contemporary India, and I would suspect it was in ancient Greece, mm. <laughs> if we went back to, to that period. And uh, there's the embedded problem that I think uh, for a woman to be superhuman in some way, 
makes her monstrous rather mm. than necessarily uh, divine. Right. Uh, and so the, the, the phenomenon that would exist for a man being inspired by a kind of divine power reads differently uh, yeah. when that is exhibited by women, uh, where there are long Western traditions of categorizing powerful women as viragos. They're not quite natural, right. uh, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. uh, even mm -hmm. female rulers. And likewise, um, uh, any number of holy women, for instance, who, yes, they're, they're comparable to men, but there's also something wrong with them. <laughs> and so there isn't the same dangerous. positive designation mm -hmm. of yeah. that divine mm -hmm. attribute in women. I mean, they're always dangerous mm -hmm. because they might usurp male power. Yeah. Uh, and they do beget children, even though men control, think they control the system. Um, yeah, I, um, going back to the question of uh, Zolot's um, oeuvre, there's actually two interesting women in that. There's the, the woman muse who helps in the self-destruction of Claude, but there's also the wife of the character who is meant to be Zola. And Zola has a really interesting argument, I think, in that novel about the function of genius and creativity, because the artist burns himself up and can never create the masterpiece. But the writer character, who's supposed to be Zola, goes to work every day um, and comes home to a family life that's directed by his wife. Mm. So I'm seeing two things. One mm. has to do with the balance between inspiration and work, which um, even in Zola, a recognized genius, he understands that that's not really how you get that done. But also in the 19th century world, there's very little room for a woman of genius. I'm not sure when there ever has been a lot of room <laughs> for a woman of genius, 19th century mm -hmm. difficulties notwithstanding. I mean, I'm really struck as well that um, there's a kind of a cumulative problem that it's one thing to be female and be a genius. Um, I'm aware of the example of Phyllis Wheatley, for instance, the 18th century African-American mm -hmm. poet. So black female genius, probably not. Um, and so the, the way in which female obviously belongs to a larger category of social experience um, and uh, cultural expectation, uh, I, I think that is a continuing problem 18th, 19th, 20th centuries and yeah. probably still now. Um, even for men, I would think, uh, that uh, uh, to be a man and a genius seems less problematic, perhaps, than being a woman and a genius, but it depends, obviously, social class, ethnic background, educational standing. So, I, again, I think the, the, the problem of women and genius is, a, is one facet of the bigger problem about, well, who is unequal and why do we say that? Yes, and if you, you go to small non-Western societies, some of which, which are are not uh, patriarchal. You have women who get to be shamans, for mm. example, and are considered really important, have right. special powers, and, um, and are, are recognized, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it takes a very different type of society, and, a, right. and an egalitarian society. Well, a reasonably egalitarian society. Also, I think there's a question of whether that is a shamanism, for example, is exactly like genius, oh, uh, or, or what the similarities and dissimilarities would be. It's not. I'm just saying be. if we go to something mm. else where women are allowed to be in right. a special category, where actually it's more like what Darren described historically, that there were supernatural powers. Yes. Yes. Um, women ha could have them. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and women in India can have them today. Um. I think that the point that Joyce was making um, about gender being embedded in a kind of larger problem of inequality is really important. I mean, I like to point out that you know, the, the same man who declared that it's a self-evident truth that all are created equal, Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, can turn around <clears throat> and speak quite openly, as many people in 18th century America and 18th century Europe do, of natural aristocrats. <clears throat> And that, that is, people who are born uh, to be superior, to lead, uh, uh, and he used, in fact, genius as one of the categories by which to define these people. And that, I think, gets to the heart of this problem that Joyce mentions in democracy, right? It's, it's kind of, it's actually a really striking thing that the cult of genius emerges in the very same century that, that human equality is on the table as a, as a possibility politically and socially. Uh, and that creates for somebody like Jefferson a huge problem, right? How do you run a society without hierarchy, okay? Well, we're gonna get rid of blood hierarchy on the basis of uh, uh, gentry and aristocracy, okay, but we need to put something in its place, and intelligence becomes one of these categories. And then the, that category then is justified uh, by a science, what in the 19th century would have been a science we would call, in many cases, pseudoscience today, um, that that placed women along with a whole uh, slew of others, uh, people of color, uh, Jews, uh, on, a, on a spectrum that showed, you know, sort of white males of European descent uh, on one end, uh, and then uh, people of color, women, and so forth on the other. Um, and this, this science that, you know, begins with physiognomy and craniometry, uh, leads to brain science, culminates in IQ. Uh, and in fact, you can show that the kind of uh, founding fathers of, of the IQ exam, Binet and uh, Louis Terman, <coughs> uh, come out of genius research studies in the, in the 19th century. Um, and they share many of the prejudices. So Galton, Terman, um, you know, they, they have uh, uh, discomfort. Uh, well, they, they just believe categorically that, uh, that, that women can't be geniuses. And, Terman sort of, from his data, says, oh, actually, women, you know, do pretty well on IQ exams. Uh, but then says, but at the extremes, right, at the real extremes where geniuses are four or five standard deviations from the norm, they don't have it, right? Uh, and they say similar things about Jews. Uh, and so, the, again, the point being is that this category of genius is a problematic one in all kinds of ways, not simply vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis gender. And precisely because it is, in a sense, defined uh, during the age of revolutions, the late 18th century, early 19th century, becomes a sort of tremendous source of cultural anxiety. Well, do you want to be equal? <laughs> or do you want to be unusual? Mm -hmm. um, and the choices uh, for people who are going to be, in a sense, classified as not toward the top, um, mm -hmm. why should there be one or the other? Uh, and it, it is a really uh, a kind of uh, removing opportunity rather than offering it. So does it come back because we're in an age of anxiety again? Mm. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, I do think that we're worried about whether we are still or increasingly a culture of meritocracy. I think that's a, a question that is of great concern um, uh, for every generation, but perhaps maybe for younger people these days about what kind of society are they going to enter as adults. Uh, it does seem like it's a moment where 
economic opportunities and therefore social and cultural opportunities might be closing. Uh, so who is going to get through and on what merit? Uh, and yeah, I think that's one reason mm -hmm. genius is a newly operative category for us. Well, also, if, um, if being special is somehow important, being most special is to be most important. And mm. so that would be one way to, you know, it's a kind of rule of thumb, say what a genius is. And so, I mean, it's a, a little bit just interesting about how we might nurture our, our progeny and make sure that everyone feels special, but how special are you compared to other people? Yeah. I mean, I think that goes to the cultural issue about meritocracy and success and, and ambition and who gets to succeed and who, and who doesn't. Yeah. And I think some of the anxiety comes from the fact that in a meritocracy, if you don't succeed, it's because you're not good enough. Mm. Um, and we still do hide a lot of the impediments um, to getting to a certain, certain place. So, um, so that's one thing. But I was also wanted to go back to the point of origin that uh, Darren was mentioning about the 18th century and the 19th century. And I wonder whether one of the reasons why it gets so uh, fixed, the issue of gender and masculinity, is that we, we welcome a world in which progress is very important. And we say that one of the characteristics of a genius is to be able to see into the future. Um, and so the, perhaps the future that we want to see in the 18th and 19th century, possibly today too, um, has to do with technology, has to do with um, the economy, has to do with some of the fields in which um, women were, were, not, were not welcome in at the time. So if a, a function of genius is to be able to leap into the future and see where we're going, um, maybe that's one of the reasons that gets so associated with the privilege with masculinity, the two things go together. We were not interested in the, uh, the 19th century or today in a world that works with imagination as, unless it's or to the degree that it works with technology and imagination, Microsoft and Google and all that. So are you kind of indirectly equating genius with function? I, I actually like to think of the um, relationship between genius and function. I don't think it's just says that, I truly uh, understand the importance of, say, a Mozart. But I think if we think in terms of how the word genius functions in our society or calling certain people geniuses and not rating certain people as geniuses or not, I think it might help unlock what, what, what we mean by it, what we mean by the word, and how then it works. Um, rather than assume that it is a natural category of being uh, or that it measures something transhistorical. Um, I do think that the designation of the world and how, word sorry, and how it functions is really analytically important, uh, more so than determining, well, yes, no, maybe, in the case of actual historical people. And, and that is actually a place where one can show that you know, when the, when the category emerges in the 17th century, people who were referred to most often as genius were poets uh, and, and creative artists. Um, and then you get the introduction of statesmen. Um, 
the, the kind of exception that proves the rule is Newton, who's spoken of as a genius from very early on, uh, but often in a way that, that characterizes him more like an, a writer or a poet uh, than a scientist. And it's really not until the 20th century with the Calderon Einstein that that immediate association between genius and science and technology is made. And today, this is, I, I should fill you in on the backstory. When we were downstairs, we were all commenting on the fact that genius has reemerged uh, relatively recently as a kind of topos of discussion in popular culture, but also in, in academic culture in a way that would have been unthinkable 20 or 30 years ago when genius was still so implicated in its dark past, its, its racism, its misogyny, um, its connection to eugenics, um, and, uh, and we've spent, in the, at least in academic circles, the last you know, uh, several decades kind of deconstructing genius, and yet it's, it's back. Uh, and we're sort of trying to figure out why that's the case. Um, uh, but it is back, and it's being spoken of. And I think one of the ways in which it's spoken of is precisely, as, as Kathleen says, um, with respect to uh, Google, with respect to uh, Microsoft with respect to uh, business technology and culture, and you know maybe there is this hope that that scientists of, of of genius can get us out of terrible problems like global warming, so that we can still you know run around in our expensive uh, sure, cars sure. all the time and so forth. But uh, so when you say genius has come back, what is it that has come back exactly? The, the conversation about this issue. Yeah. The conversation. Sure. Does the conversation since. It's not back in anthropology. Does the conversation it never include was there, right? women? <laughs> I mean, is that part of the conversation? Mm -hmm. uh, I think so. I mean, you know, yeah. the. I, I, well, even Julia de Cristeva, I mean, yeah. a, like, genius is actually female, um, genius functions as a female. Yeah, I mean, even so, some people are writing that or that have way. Yeah, yeah, and even, even for historians, I, I think that obviously we're talking about a certain idea that is floating around the, the global West um, and has very United States dimensions. That yeah. Really, you referred to Silicon Valley as a very specific site of right. genius, which is a very particular place on Earth, let's just say. Sure. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure where it's back. Um, certainly within Western academia, picking up, I think, on some of the public's willingness to use it again as an innocent category of description, mm -hmm. whereas we obviously approach it with more suspicion about what it represents in the longer history and a disbelief that is actually describing something real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, I think one can point to, to ways in which it's back in, as you say, not just in the United States, but in Western media more generally. Um, but there is a surprising resurgence of interest in it as, a, as an analytical category, mm -hmm. it seems, mm -hmm. within... Um, in academic circles, which is quite striking, I think. Mm -hmm. um, well, so one could say that genius is good to think with now. So we're trying to think mm -hmm. about issues of meritocracy. We're trying to think about um, issues of child raising. We're trying to think about practical questions about how to see it, solve global warming. Maybe there'll be yeah. a technological solution, all kind right. of things like that. But in um, for historians, it's become a... Um, a category that helps us maybe see the difference between the 18th century and the 19th century, or our connections with different periods. Mm -hmm. So that's what we might mean by good to think with. It helps open up a, a certain plane um, in history that we hadn't thought through before. 
Sure, and therefore the work that it is supposed to be doing uh, mm -hmm. in any given era is quite striking. Uh, mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the older uh, poetic or uh, artistic sense of genius mm -hmm. only gave way to our modern scientific technocratic idea of it with mm -hmm. Einstein. So it's really quite striking that Darwin, <laughs> for various mm -hmm. reasons, was ne never really described as part of a cult of genius. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really mm -hmm. interesting 19th mm -hmm. century, it would seem lapse in terms mm -hmm. of the development of genius, but mm -hmm. it makes perfect cultural sense. And only now, I think, are we moving really even away from science uh, in terms of discoveries about the natural world to a technological uh, application of our knowledge to solve problems in a world where I think we are uh, all worried about shrinking natural resources, shrinking opportunities, um, and therefore the human mind has to expand, and genius does that for us. Mm -hmm. Whoops. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Thanks. Well, um, Slightly related question, and a little bit uh, maybe interesting with respect to uh, concerns about gender. I'm thinking about the um, recent uh, triumph of a computer over the Go master. Ah. Um, and I'm just thinking, too, that um, whether computers or the artificial intelligence are, in fact, masculine or whether they're neutral. Um, <laughs> that would be quite or feminine, mm -hmm. or but feminine. Neutral would be the real achievement, right? Mm -hmm. That yes. it's beyond gender mm -hmm. uh, somehow. Mm -hmm. it, machine intelligence cannot be described uh, in terms of men and we women, don't know. except for there's a, of course, huge public discussion about the the lack of female coders, yeah. right? And and computer engineers is a real problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in, I mean, that's actually a really interesting question to yeah. be asking, mm -hmm. I think. But again, yeah. a very culturally distinct one, since that uh, the our our idea that mathematics and computer science belong to men. Um, is again Western and in India uh, mathematics and coding are more open mm -hmm. to girls uh, mm -hmm. than they are mm -hmm. here. So, mm -hmm. an interesting way in which internationally yeah. that machine genius uh, mm -hmm. may eventually, if it is the work of many global hands, uh, sure. Sure. be neutral. I was struck in the description of the battle between the human and the ma um, machine with the Go that the machine had uh, seemed to have found an inspired way to win the game. It had been a, a way that hadn't been thought of before. So the Go master said, I had never thought of using those kinds of things, as opposed to simply thinking more quickly to get to a certain point. Um, yeah. it, so perhaps the machine had genius in this older fashioned Crazy. sense of, of, of inspiration. I, I'm also reminded that the uh, Hamilton, <laughs> Uh, speaks a lot about genius. The obviously the, the show. Alexander. The show. <laughs> the show. The show. Hamilton exclamation mark. Okay, right. Hamilton <laughs> exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, Burr talks about um, you know everybody. Geniuses lower your voices. Hmm. Uh, he mentions that his mother is a genius. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and there's a sense that um, you know a, a kind of reification of the the revolutionary moving history forward through acts of individual and collective genius. Mm -hmm. And that might be something that ha has such resonance today because maybe it goes back to a question about anxiety. Who's going to solve our problems? Um, who's going to solve global warming? Who's going to figure out who the bad people are in Paris and Belgium and stop the 
bot mains. You know, who's going who's gonna to do this? Is it going to be collective? Is it going to be individual? Mm. How are we going to get there? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here's where I think... And are uh, women going to be a part of it? Okay. But here's where I think the ideas about genius intersect with those about charisma uh, and leadership, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as well as, I mean, we were talking earlier downstairs uh, about the cult of celebrity um, mm -hmm. and the idea about particularly... Mm -hmm people grabbing the spotlight, um, as Hamilton did, um, and does every night, again, 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 um, uh, where uh, having ambition um, and wanting to be prominent uh, can be qualifications or be perceived as qualifications for problem solving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and establishing one as a genius, because I, another point we were beginning to develop downstairs, too, had to do with it has to somehow to do with success, too. I mean, if you are four years old, then how do you know if that person is a, is a genius? So um, achievement and getting to the place where one can achieve is one of the vital questions. And I think that intersects with the issue of gender, because it has historically been so much easier for a male to get to that space mm -hmm. than for a female to get to that space. One of the... Um, projects I'm working on has to do with uh, a um, man in Geneva who uh, explores the Alps for the first time. Um, but he has a sister who is almost invisible in history. Sounds like a familiar uh, story. But it's very interesting. His sister's name is uh, Judith, Judith. And um, Voltaire is living in Geneva at the same time she is growing up. And she asks uh, Voltaire, if he would be her mentor. And he write, she writes him letters and they meet and um, he plays along with her. Um, and then at a certain point in time, something horrible happens and uh, it appears that they have a little bit of possibly a sexual encounter, it's probably not true, but her reputation is ruined throughout Europe because of this. Um, it's why written about it in Grimm's... What? Why wasn't it enhanced? Uh, why, why did it ruin her reputation? It, it ruined her in, in, um, reputation uh, in Geneva as a 16, 17, 18-year-old ah, okay. girl. Right, right, right. It enhanced Voltaire's <laughs> so that Grimm and Richelieu and, in fact, the court circle um, laughed at... Uh, you know, isn't that Voltaire? He's almost 80 years old and he's still having these things. It's actually Madame de Denis who spreads this rumor. Mm. So it's terrible for her, but it's a, um, what is uh, interesting is that the young uh, Madame de Chatelet also had asked Voltaire, mm. be my mentor. And it works for her, and she becomes um, very important as a mathematician, translator of Newton, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm trying to say is that there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's a more vulnerable way in which women have been able to get to the world of success. It is often through the world of the masculine, so it's also very open to, we might even say abuse, but vulnerabilities too. Um, and that, that's, that's just part of the, the problem, the gendered problem. And uh, I began with talking about saying that genius is recognized through achievement, it's just a more difficult and more complicated way in history for women to get to that place of achievement. And, or and even allowed certainly. to begin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
see it in that, that root. And it's certainly important for 18th century ideas of genius that it seem untutored. Uh, that mm -hmm. have a kind of natural um, and internal foundation mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. the person who's going to be so designated. And that to be dependent on the education or the mm -hmm. tutelage or the patronage of another questions that. Mm -hmm. And so the, the way in which a, particularly a young woman might mm -hmm. work through a male patron would immediately question whatever accomplishment mm -hmm. might eventually play out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I think continues to be... Uh, a sense about genius, that it has to have a <coughs> kind of spontaneous bursting out um, from a person, mm -hmm. which obviously puts a burden on um, mm -hmm. somebody who has less access to education and, and all of the things that might actually be the, the mm -hmm. foundation for this kind of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, is genius then completely related to the product of that person? Mm -hmm. Or is genius, uh, I mean, based on the level of right. the IQ? In other words, if a person with an IQ of 110 uh, makes a fantastic discovery, he becomes a genius? Well, you know, that's so interesting because I do think that that's part of the point that not just Zola makes, but Stendhal, who very, very gifted writers, but Stendhal also has a, a moment of truth, though he's a genius, but he's a moment of truth. He says in his autobiography, um, in his memoir, he says, why did I, you know, 30 years old or however years older, and I've been waiting for inspiration every day. Why didn't somebody, when I was 15, tell me just to get up in the morning and work for three to five hours a day? So I'm not fully answering your question, but clearly actually doing the thing. Um, is, is important. Maybe with a IQ of 110 or 140, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, there's, a, go ahead. Th there's this whole kind of romantic idea of the undiscovered genius, right? Uh, but when, when genius becomes an, a category of research, and, and it's Francis Galton, who's the father of eugenics, who's the, the key figure here, uh, his first book is called Hereditary Genius, and he tries to figure out you know, why geniuses arise at a certain point. He, he just makes the distinction that, you know, that creativity or production is the, the sole measure of genius. Otherwise, you don't have anything. And so he says, basically, an undiscovered genius is, a, is an oxymoron. Um, and a lot of people who study genius now follow that. So Dean Keith Simonton, who was here last time uh, with us, who uh, is a psychologist uh, emeritus at, at UC Davis, practices what Galton called historometrics. And basically, you study achievement. You study production, right? And a genius is in, in the goods. The problem with that kind of analysis, though, is that, um, and this is Dean's own uh, figure, that something like only 3% of significant world production in the arts or in the sciences uh, is created by women, right? Uh, and, um, you know, in other words, if, and, so, and, and this was a problem for Galton. Galton turned around and said, you know, who are the geniuses in, uh, in, in 19th century England? And lo and behold, they were all white men, you sure, know? Sure. Uh, why would that be the case? Well, because they've had access to education, they've had uh, uh, the, the family backgrounds, they uh, run the institutions that give the label out in the first place. And so studying simply productivity is a kind of way of finding what you're looking for uh, in, in the first place. Oh, sure, and it's been used in terrible ways. I mean, in the world of mathematics, in the world of philosophy. I had a professor uh, say to me once that, this is true, um, 
how many female philosophers can you name? Right. Yeah. Zero. So. Or mathematicians, so, so or yeah. composers, yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't bother. Yeah. Don't so bother. Therefore, right. ergo, Don't right. bother. Right. So. Don't well, bother. I was also struck by recent coverage of uh, the. I mean, this is this is not a recent discovery, but it is uh, a good reminder that whenever a profession, for instance, becomes more than fifty mm-hmm. percent female, uh, wages go down in that profession. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, any category that really matters um, has men as a minority, uh, and mm-hmm. this is out, uh, expressed in economic terms as well as the kind of cultural capital of the idea mm-hmm. of genius. Mm-hmm. There, on the other hand, a little bit there's um, the story of Mendelssohn's sister. I mean, I suppose Mendelssohn could be, doesn't matter, called a genius or not. Um, but they came from the same family, a very rich banking family in Vienna, and um, they were educated together. Their education was apparently the, the, uh, the wonder of all of Europe. Everyone went to their salon concerts, and Mendelssohn and Fanny, Felix and Fanny, were educated together, and they performed together at these salons, and everyone knew they were both geniuses. There was really no question. And they were treated as such very well. And when Fanny became 15 or 16, she received a letter from her father on her birthday. And it said, from now on, you must consider yourself an ornament. And your joy must come from your brother's success. And it absolutely stopped her. And she wasn't allowed to um, publish or to give concerts in public, only in her home, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened was everyone forgot about her, but she went, she went on composing and playing, but she could only do it in small forms. She couldn't hire an orchestra or write an oratorio or anything like that to have in her, performed in her house. Mm-hmm. She did trios and duets and songs and stuff like that, and she couldn't publish, mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And finally, when her father died, um, her very nice husband encouraged her to go and because other women were out right. for instance Georges Sand was out there doing things and uh, Clara Schumann was too turns out that those were about class if you were an aristocrat or lower class you could, you could do things like that but if you were Jewish converted uh, like the Mendelssohn's, it was dangerous. But anyway, when she was about 40 and her father died, she started to publish. Everyone knew who she was and how, how gifted she was, and she was beginning to have some success, and then she had a stroke and died. Right. And Mendelssohn collapsed when he heard about it, and six months later, he was dead too. So anyway, I just wanted to say the obstacles that are, you know, that are put in women's paths still. Sure. Why are there no women philosophers? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard, right? I mean, that's really strange. Yeah, uh, and, and I agree that these are terrible stories about the waste of human capital. Yeah. Uh, again and again and again. And they really show us the very embedded way in which societies have worked in terms of inequality. But I still have the question, why do we want women to be geniuses? What is achieved um, by having women um, fulfill that category or fit into that category that, as we've been identifying, is insidious in in all kinds of ways? Uh, Agreed. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that th- th- this can be a, a very important uh, way of revealing how Western society has achieved only so much by the 18th century, by the 19th century, by the 20th century. But with the resurgence of interest in genius now, I guess I don't want to see um, that the way in which women might be categorized as genius solves the problem. Because in a sense, I think it's playing along with the game 
that uh, has mm. been really, really, uh, again, insidious about ranking of different kinds of human beings uh, for a very long period of time. Agreed. I, I just thought that since men have this special status, um, Right. The playing field ought to be leveled. That's yeah. All. Well, I just think that we should probably question the special status and no longer call Mendelssohn a genius. Well, I'm oh, getting rid, <laughs> of, getting rid of the category I, would be the best thing, I think. Yeah. But, but you say it's sure. coming back. So. No, I'm, um, I'm just saying it's coming back as part of public discourse yes, and fascination, yes. not yeah, that no. there's a reality now uh, that never existed before. But I don't believe that. that. There's a real interest in trying to classify people in oh. an era mm -hmm. when we're trying just the opposite or trying to promote mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. and if you're going to promote women yeah. if you're going to have the category genius then you better damn well have some women in there but uh, but, but what do you uh, use as a, a term or a category instead now i think of virginia Woolf's to the lighthouse mm. and i can't think of that book without thinking of it as being almost a perfect thing which is one of the definitions of what geniuses were a product of the genius. It, something that appears perfect structurally that can hardly be chipped away at. And so if we don't call that an act of genius, I wonder if we're calling it an act of beauty, which could also work in the world of mathematics. Mathematicians talk about their things as beauty. Newton's do own discoveries. I think that's part of re one of the reasons why he's understood in his age as poetic, because the, the heavens are in some way poetic. There's a sense of, perf maybe there's a sense of perfection that um, might even be innate, might be at least intuitive that we see. But I can think of that novel as being something to my mind as, as perfect as it can be structurally. Um, and that somehow we can recognize. Mm. And so if it's not genius, I wonder what it is. Well, I think the, the difficulty here is shifting from praise of the product to praise of the producer. I mm. agree. I think that's it. As I said that, I think it's it. Rather than Virginia Woolf being the genius, it, things are a work of genius. And that would be liberating, I think, with respect to um, gender itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because actually, if we could identify a long list of all of the things that humanity has done <laughs> that are valuable um, and uh, amazing inspiration, uh, I think we could very easily establish that probably it's not just men who did that. Right, or even behind you know, the stories of great men uh, are often great women, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's, I think it is interesting though, we, you know, when I said that 3% figure, but the one way you can grow that a little bit is, is in literature. Uh, mm -hmm. And literature doesn't have the same prohibition uh, that no, sort of, you, you don't need to hire an orchestra, right? Uh, so the, the startup yes, costs yeah. are less, right? And so one can, you know, fairly easily compile a list of great women writers uh, in, in the 19th century, yeah. right? From Jane Austen yeah, but forward. The, but uh, the women who or originated writing novels don't get acknowledged. I'm, I'm not saying they're geniuses, but the history got rewritten and just eliminated a whole bunch oh. of people. Um, and, oh, and it became a male category. And then you rediscover women. 
But the, the other dimension here um, worth, I think, our interrogation is the idea of authorship anyway, mm. um, that it is not necessarily only an individual thing. There sure. can be communities of production and creativity. Uh, and very often, the credit goes to one person. And it's interesting that that happens anyway. And it's, of course, especially interesting in terms of this discussion when it happens for the male author who is perceived as the, the genius within the community. But very, again, if we're going to look at works that uh, have benefited humanity, who did that? I think very often it's not that just we're talking about men and women, but a lot of people working together. Yeah, and that's, that's an, this is a, another side issue, but it's uh, centrally related. And the, the cult of genius emerges at the same time as the notion of copyright. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there's, a, there's an interest in identifying a creator who owns his creation, so therefore can drive profit from it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the cult of the genius then is, is very convenient. It's convenient also mm -hmm. in a market society when you're trying to find ownership. Um, and that, I, th I think that's part of its resurgence today. Maybe I mean, that's you know, why yeah. It's yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, just just off the top of my head, I mean, there've been a whole slate of, of genius films of late, right? So Alan Turing, <laughs> and um, the the two Steve Jobs films, um, uh, a Beautiful Mind before that, then the uh, the film about Facebook. Sorry, the Facebook Facebook founder, and um, I'm forgetting the you know the great physicist, uh, Cambridge physicist who's in a wheelchair, Hawking. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Hawking, Hawking, right? Uh, and then about you uh, all know, uh, <laughs> they're all men. <laughs> Boris Spassky and company. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and I mean in the in the Jobs case, it's actually very interesting, right? I mean, you know, clearly the man had uh, marketing uh, genius, if you will, uh, but, but Jobs isn't a creator uh, no. of anything, right? right? Uh, and in fact, you, one can argue that he's, what he's really good at is taking other people's ideas uh, and, you know, giving them a kind of logic of their own, and yet the brand, you know, if you've seen that the, 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 the first of the Jobs film, the opening shot, you know, as he comes down the stairs is that big picture of Einstein, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the man that got Walter Isaacson, who's written biographies of mm -hmm. Einstein and Benjamin Franklin, to, to write his biography. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. you know, uh, I mean, he's, he's setting out to, to kind of myth-make in that way. Yes. Um, Hence a lot of the popular interest. Uh, it'd be fascinating to know how far Isaacson's books have been translated, and then yeah, probably yeah. that would yeah, yeah. help us identify uh, who is talking about genius now, because I think that's been a very important prompt for everyone. But, but I, I think I, I like what uh, the idea of eliminating the genius as the person, but focusing on the work as a work of genius, because mm -hmm. Uh, it also takes care of the problem that you may be have a work that seems a work of genius today, but 10 years from now it seems mm. completely wrong. So mm. it, it allows you to be more flexible. It's hard to say he was a genius 10 years ago, but he's no longer a genius <laughs> now. But you can say it seemed to us it was a work of genius then, but now we've learned other things and we no longer right. think that about it. But may change in the future. Um. Again, it, <laughs> that's what's happening with Lamarck, right? Yeah. Suddenly Lamarck is coming back. I mean, Kathleen, you mentioned uh, Julia Kristeva um, a, a little while ago, and I think, you know, there, so coming out of this effort to deconstruct genius in the post-World War II period then was an emphasis to think about what, what women might bring to bear 
specifically as women. And Kristeva, and then actually Derrida in one of his last works, um, have things to say about this, right? And Kristeva wants to argue that there's a kind of, that, that women's link to creation and procreation uh, gives them kind of special insight into uh, the creative process, that women have a certain relationality she, uh, that, that puts them in touch with uh, different people in a better way. Um, and the, again, you get into kind of essentialist ideas of what genius is, but I think that's important to bring up that there's, there's, that's part of a discourse, that there may be something uniquely uh, feminine about, uh, about certain kinds of genius and that, that we should be in the business of cultivating that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I see a push, um, in a sense, in a different direction on that question from animal studies, Hmm. which every year those folks are getting better at trying to make a good case for animal intelligence as Hmm. comparable to human intelligence. Um, And I don't think it's there yet. I mean, the yet is implied. We'll see. Um, We can't see into the future uh, on that question. But it is interesting. A lot of that analysis does not pay any attention to gender. It's just how smart crows mm. are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Period. Um, right. How, what, what kind of intelligence dolphins have. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, that's a really interesting way, again, like computer or, or mm-hmm. machine intelligence, where it is, for the moment, neutral. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think pursuing a lot of the same questions, but doing so quite mm-hmm. profitably differently. Mm-hmm. But wait. Sure. There's, some, there's oh. some dumb male animals, though. There's some what? Dumb male animals. <laughs> so we blame I'm, I'm it on them. I'm not sure that computer intelligence is, is neutral because the, the programming <coughs> has been done by men for the most part and it has a very strong male cultural association. I, I was only um, referring yeah, to that. Um, um, now as we're getting more and more women into math and science and engineering, that image may change, but you know, probably not in my lifetime. Uh, but, but it's yeah. happening. Yeah. I think the response in, um, with respect to animal studies um, could be that uh, here again you could see, I mean, I can see this argument being made that about the animal studies is very interesting because it raises the question of the distinctiveness of humans with respect to other species. One could say that genius could be held on to. Um, hmm. Um, because it might be a special characteristic of being human because we can't quite measure it um, in animals. I'm not forwarding that, but I'm suggesting that that might be something else that could be going on uh, with respect to thinking about genius. What makes humans distinct in a world in which we're understanding ourselves in such a, um, a real web that has to do with machines and that has to do with um, other species? What is it particularly uh, about being human that, that tells us that we're human and not something else? Mm-hmm. So once we find the genius dolphin, uh, that will be the <laughs> that will be that will shake it up. The question. That will um, shake it up. Yes, and that is uh, going back to what problems do we think genius is going to solve? Um, mm-hmm. If, for instance, it's climate change. Um, that's uh, a way of thinking about ourselves in which we are comparing ourselves to other animals, uh, mm-hmm. that we are just other animals, we need natural resources, and if we don't have them, we are going to suffer. Um, uh, but uh, it is hypothetical whether we're gonna be like, unlike other animals in terms mm-hmm. of solving that problem. I'm, I'm laughing to myself because I'm remembering a, a French anthropologist who was, um, <clears throat> there was a whole movement 
brain studies and not just studying brains but collecting them. So there were massive museums uh, all over the world at the end of the 19th century and one of the biggest was at the Musée de l'Homme in, in Paris. 8,000 brains and, and skulls. And of course the dominant notion at the time was that the bigger the brain the smarter you were. And you know, somebody pointed out that you know, by that calculus uh, uh, the whale is the smartest creature of them all, clearly, right? And, uh, I mean, it, it's a good it shows you how dumb scientists can be, right? I mean, it, you know, that, that they hadn't thought in those terms for the longest time. That, you know, of course, brain size varies with body mass, right? Uh, bigger people have bigger brains. It doesn't mean they're smarter. But, uh, but, um, yeah, but it's still, still an issue for <laughs> the people are, are fighting. Yeah. I'm not entirely comfortable with genius as product. Well, I'm not comfortable with genius, but uh, mm. but I I I think especially having written the biography of Cora Dubois and thinking about her and the lifespans of other prominent women who managed to accomplish things in a world that was very male dominated and where it was very difficult for them. You have to look at the whole life to to understand how special they were, um, and I'm not saying you know I want to throw her into the genius category necessarily, but it wouldn't be just one product. It would be the way she and others that I can think of managed to work through a whole series of you know very male professions and get to the top, um, and so. Her, whole, her life is the product. It's not any one thing. Mm. And uh, I think of Gertrude Bell, somebody like that. The same thing. Many different professional activities, but a, just an amazing woman. Um, and so I, for me, it's the life and how they managed uh, in, under very difficult circumstances and what the toll was on them. Uh, to to get to that level of achievement, um, and it's it's often a very heavy toll. Mm. I, I think you're right, but I'm also thinking about Margaret Mead and Ruth mm. Benedict, who I think didn't have to deal. I think you're. <laughs> they didn't have. Thank <laughs> you. They didn't have to deal with as much prejudice for some reason in anthropology in those days. Uh, not, not true. true. Not, not true. true. Okay, tell it. <laughs> well, women, a small number of women were were allowed to pursue PhDs, but they never got positions. You know, Mead was with the museum. Right. Mm. Um, Benedict did get a position because she worked closely with Boaz, and he eventually got her a position at Columbia. Um, but as soon as he retired, they brought in a man to run the department. Um, and, and so she, she was the exception. Dubois was the exception for her generation, yes. the, the only one. So even though there were a lot of women invited into the field, they were kept at lowly positions. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I see the attraction of thinking about a person as a genius in the sense of thinking about the, the whole life, but I'm... I'm, I'm not sure whether, how would that not be a matter of determination plus talent plus resilience plus, plus all these things? No. I wonder if it also does, um, though, speak to something um, in the history of genius. I mean, uh, 
one thinks of Napoleon, who's often described as not just a genius at the military or a genius at people, but he's a kind of charismatic genius person in this age of, of, of being that. I mean, it, it just seems like that's a little bit more of a myth than looking at a creation. I mean, I think, I feel that we're on clearer ground if we look at, at what has been accomplished. But I think that though the what has been accomplished could be something more than one particular work of art or two. I'm kind of thinking of, uh, I was thinking of this with respect to the issue of climate change and the um, meetings in Paris in December. And it, um, if you followed them at all, you could see that one of the reasons why the COP21 um, meeting succeeded was because of French diplomacy, which one could almost say was an invention, a cultural invention of genius. It allows people to get together. The contrast was made between the, the talks in Copenhagen and the, cost, the talks in, in Paris, where in Copenhagen people couldn't eat good food and the lighting was bad and stuff like that. But the flexibility of the people in charge at Paris, Laurent Fabius and the woman whose name I forget, and I totally apologize, in charge, they um, mobilized the history of French diplomacy in order to get everyone, as it were, around the table. So we can think, I think, of long-term accomplishments as being accomplishments of genius that other people can use or not, and that exist in a kind of sense that's both beautiful and effective. Shall we go to questions? Sure, let's do that. People ready. Uh, just a quick comment. As an avid Go player, I stayed up all night watching the matches. And <laughs> the um, commentators I listen to often refer to AlphaGo, the program, as she. Uh, I don't know if that was just a particular to that one person. Interesting. But um, that's what Thanks. they did. <laughs> Thanks. Just like Hi, thanks very much. Um, I'm used to, I'm not a professional uh, in the place that you are, but um, I'm used to thinking of uh, intelligence, those seven categories of emotional intelligence, and I'm wondering what, if anything, you think about viewing um, genius in, the, in that way. I mean, there's almost no relationship between, I mean, a mathematical genius versus an artistic genius versus a, a many other different categories, a musical genius. Is it useful to, to, um, get at the issue of gender by segmenting achievement through the prism of field, major fields. So, I mean, so you're referring to sort of the Howard Gardner's idea that there are multiple intelligence and so forth. Yeah, I mean, of course, this is a much disputed notion whether, I, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that, you know, the people on the other side of that argument would argue that there is something that unites um, spatial intelligence with mathematical intelligence, musical intelligence, and that is the general intelligence factor, G, right, that, that yeah. you can do factor analysis on IQ exams and show correlations between these various types. Um, I'm, I, I mean, personally, I, I think that, you know, we all know people who are really good at math and can't talk to other human beings, or uh, you know, who or people who can you know write. Uh, and and it, it makes intuitive sense to me that there are different styles, uh, intellectual styles. Uh, and I think this is something that Chris Dave was hinting at that you know, that that there may be something um, 
feminine about certain types of thinking, you know. Uh, again, I, I'm slightly uncomfortable with this, uh, um, but, uh, but that was, you know, the way she was directed, yeah. I think it was useful in rescuing music as a form of intelligence and mm -hmm. athletic ability as a form of intelligence. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have never... Yeah. They didn't have that standing before Howard Gardner. Uh, well, Galton right writes about, uh, Francis Galton actually writes about rowers and wrestlers in his hereditary oh, yes. genius, yeah. Uh, and, you know, then there's the Robert Musil's famous line of a racehorse of genius and the, the man without equalities. And so, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think you're right. And, and clearly, right, somebody like, uh, well, in fact, I was thinking just recently that Time magazine did a, a kind of special issue on genius and, um, um, the Sabrina, thank you, yeah, uh, the African-American tennis star, was on the cover as genius. And clearly that kind of spatial sense, uh, yeah. ability to kind of see the court, um, you know, this is something that is a kind of genius, right? A kind of superlative uh, ability in a certain category. Well, Sabrina, but I think that the, was that celebrity? I mean, to, Sorry? Or was that a question of celebrity that, that, that she got on the cover of... Well, she's, she's won she's a lot good. of tournaments, you know? Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not, it's not really good. <laughs> I mean, that's the I'm, difference between I'm genius and... I'm saying yeah. in this re-emergence of talking yeah. about people as geniuses, right. I'm delighted that she was, you know, that they said that. Sure. But I would guess that a big part of it was celebrity. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I see, in a sense, a kind of democratization of the category of maybe, genius by multi maybe. multiplying the areas in which people can make extraordinary accomplishments. Which... And you know, that might be a positive. African-American woman is major. Yeah. Which but. might be a positive development. But the, the categorization of certain kinds of genius as more female and others as male, I think that's a way of making sure that women don't get in some categories. Um. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. I hear today very, a lot of interesting ideas, but I have too many, too much, too much to say. I try to be um, very short, but it's like comment and questions together. First of all, I would like um, to ask why nobody talked about how destructive people who we call geniuses could be. For example, especially in art, Medigliani, who, who was alcoholic, destroyed his girlfriend, everything around uh, him, uh, Einstein, who destroyed his first wife, wife with whom he probably started his probability theory, um, and a lot of other people who destroyed everything around them. Would I would like to be that kind of genius? Would I would like to drink for whole night to discover uh, yellow color as Modigliani? I probably would not, you see. So it's it's very um, uh, it's one of the questions. Would it be possible that actually these hierarchical structures, when we put geniuses on the top, uh, could be actually the cause of mm -hmm. today? Um, global warming today, uh, <laughs> catastrophe, not like we should not probably wait for geniuses to solve it, probably we should recycle, and probably we should 
rebalance the situation and remove these hierarchical structures and then we probably to survive and if we wait for this probably we would not for uh, solution and probably it's not good idea make neutral um, uh, artificial intelligence probably mm. it should be ab absolutely I don't know not different mm. sex it's not even connected to sex you see it's kind of they don't have sex uh, <laughs> computers don't have sex they are absolutely different it's something that, that uh, absolutely separate from <laughs> us why we should put them in these categories and and uh, genesis actually probably part of the problem and we have to rebalance this situation i had something else to say but probably i i don't remember maybe Thank you. I, I think <laughs> i completely Genius agree that in some ways the category <laughs> is what gives people permission to misbehave i wouldn't say that there is something innately about geniuses that is evil, but certainly uh, I, I, I doubt that Napoleon questioned people who called him a mm. genius, and that was, in, if, if anything, kind of encouragement and, uh, for and what he thought he was doing. Right. So absolutely, the way in which it gives license to people to misbehave and more privileged people even more license yeah. to misbehave, definitely. Exactly. And that's part of the mythology associated yes. with genius going yeah. way back. I mean, it's, a, you know, um, Diderot writes in the Rameau's Nephew about the kind of relationship between genius and crime. And there's a famous line there where the, the genius is like a tall tree that chokes off the sunlight mm -hmm. and shade for the other trees around so you get stunted growth, right? And it might uh, be the 19th century that um, allows people first to be uh, geniuses of crime. Yeah. Like in those yeah, the, yeah. The, the stories about Parisian Moriarty, life and, no, Napoleon and of course Moriarty of crime. is yeah. Napoleon, yeah. the Napoleon of crime. Sure. Uh, speaking of um, uh, geniuses who are misbehaving, there's a gentleman named Kanye West who's declared himself as a genius. Um, but one of the, the <laughs> ideas that's circling him is that he's not actually a genius, he's a senius. He's involved in the middle of a scene. There's a lot of people that he's connecting with. They've kind of allowed him to come up, and he's become the spokesperson of a larger group of people. And you can see the same thing with Steve Jobs and other characters. Mm. So I guess the idea is, is genius just a dumb old word that we don't really need to focus on anymore and more focus on the seniuses? Because then you can take each individual who's speaking today as their own seniors or as a member of a scene that's bringing something, bringing enlightenment forward to humankind. I hadn't heard that term, it's wonderful. It's the idea of being the conductor, the band leader, yeah, yeah. Um, or the empresario, or the yeah. master of uh, a, a studio. Uh, so again, going back to the idea that communities actually make the greatest creative contributions to society. Um, mm -hmm. But the way in which that often is uh, has to intersect with or develop into an author, um, that one person is more important in terms of uh, creating that creative ferment, uh, making the product that is eventually and identifiable, branding it, yeah. uh, and branding it, getting the copyright, and so on. Sure, uh, it seems so, so connected with uh, the culture today and how things are working in Google, et cetera, et cetera, that it, it just seems like a, an echo of that and, and a way to legitimize it. But, but one could argue, I mean, you mentioned Darwin before, that, you know, that I think one of the reasons why Darwin wasn't categorized as a genius uh, in the way that Einstein later is, is that people could see clearly what was also true of Einstein, and that is that, um, that, that you know, Darwin was sort of 
first to the, the block, but only just, right? You had mm -hmm. Wallace and others mm -hmm. there. And if Darwin hadn't come up with uh, natural selection, it yes. would have been discovered. So Darwin, you know, kind of puts his finger on something that's in the air. And that's what geniuses always do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the genius in this respect, you know, does that as well, mm -hmm. sort of um, becomes a focal point for cultural movement, right? Uh, and then brands it individually, because that's the way we like to do things in the West, but, uh, but really it's speaking for a collective, right? Uh, or embodying collective movement. Um, the comment before about Hindu goddesses, it inspired me to wonder about the connection between religious movements and secular, the rise of secularism and <coughs> The, the, the emergence of the cult of genius and the, the reemergence of, of genius today. Um, insofar as I, I wonder if genius is not potentially sort of a replacement for God, that, you know. It's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thesis of my book, by the way. So. Oh. <laughs> your your and, crisp $20 and, bill is available. Exactly. <laughs> Pay you after. I hope you cited me in your book. <laughs> <laughs> I will now. Uh, so. and, and also, to, you know, just in, in terms of, you know, in, in a, a climate of a rise of secularism, society still looks to defer to some sort of authority that if someone is the pinnacle of something that therefore they are, you know, even if they might be hesitant to, um, to accept it, that they, or to acknowledge it, that they are sort of divinely inspired with that. Um, and, and also the, ex the extension of that is that in Western society that, you know, might be, you know, it's sort of implied in everything, but this, you know, paternalistic, monotheistic idea of God as referred to as a man, that that might be another sort of, you know, undercurrent of why it's so difficult to accept women as geniuses. So I, I'm, but I'm interested to know about what you know of the connection of religion and secularism in these two. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, I wasn't kidding, it's actually the, the main thesis of my book, that the cult of genius emerges it, 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 in, in, in effect as a replacement for not only God, but for um, a whole kind of series of mediating beings that in all of human history from the beginning of time had served as kind of intermediaries between uh, the heavens and the earth, right? So saints, prophets, apostles. Um, and it, this is very clear with somebody like Newton. I mean, in the iconography of Newton, Newton is somebody who's, who's, who can see the mind of God, right? And we talk about Einstein in this way too. See into the fabric of the universe, right? See in, in a prophetic way, uh, in, in a way that ordinary mortals can uh, and then translate that and give voice to that. Uh, whereas, uh, whereas Newton buried, uh, you know, in uh, Westminster Abbey, right? So, uh, like a saint, literally cultivated like a saint. In fact, there's a whole kind of traffic in the body parts of geniuses in the 19th century, uh, as if they're relics of, of saints and so forth. And so, there, are, uh, I think, a lot of ways in which the, the genius serves or does religious work. And in fact. At the beginning of the 20th century, you have German and Austrian sociologists writing about a religion of genius. Which, uh, and you know, somebody was talking about the dark side of genius. Actually, this is a whole other uh, kind of discussion, but um, it's, it's very clear that, that the National Socialists and Nazis make use of this kind of genius cult in promoting Hitler uh, as, as a genius, as, as you know, bizarre as that sounds to us today. So uh, there are all kinds of things. And Hitler self-consciously uses this as well. 
But it seems to me the other dark side of this uh, uh, dimension of genius is the fact that it's so pessimistic about human nature. Because mm. it basically mm. says that humans cannot, are not capable of extraordinary achievement unless there's this sort of mm. weirdly inhuman capacity right. that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And that it can't be widely distributed. <laughs> and this just seems to me kind of defeatist, uh, yeah. that we assume that human beings cannot actually be creative um, and extraordinarily uh, devoted to certain kinds of tasks and problem solving, and that that has to belong to a tiny minority of people who are bizarre. Right. Why, why do we have to think of humanity as being defined that way? Mm. Why can't we think of achievement again in more collective terms um, and as being more evenly distributed through humanity? That would be, I think, a more optimistic idea of the, of the race. <laughs> Also, though, it, was, it seems that we're sort of setting up the 19th century and and modern, you know, the 21st century essentially as as two points in in you know significant yeah. times in genius. And and you referred to sort of uh, you know uh, the period, which I assume is essentially the 20 the 20th century. Although you just cited the rise of Hitler, so it, um, but I, I wonder if you know when you talk about the the retraction in the 20th century, if you're referring mostly to the academic sphere, or if you're referring to society at large, and if so, you know, if you might speak to the religious sort of frame of what's going on in the 20th century, as, by contrast to the, the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, huge subject, but I, I think the, the, the short answer would be that the, the genius cult is extremely strong uh, in Europe and in this country until the Second World War. And, and after the Second World War, for, for a whole variety of reasons, part of it's being linked to uh, the Nazi cult and also the kind of the cult around Stalin uh, and, and Lenin as geniuses and that other totalitarian regimes use linked to eugenics and so forth, uh, what I call the religion of genius loses its appeal. Uh, In some ways, Einstein is the last kind of figure who occupies this space. And even to, I mean, Steve Jobs plays the part well enough. I mean, he's eccentric and, you know, he's prone to outbursts and so forth, but no one really thinks that he can kind of speak the voice of God, right? I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but... (laughs) Which God? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That he's sort of divine divinely uh, enchanted and possessed. Uh, and so I think that, you know, in that respect, you see kind of falling off uh, of the religion, religion of genius in the second part of the 20th century. And I don't think that's back today. Uh, I mean, this, what's going on today is, is different, I think. But, but, but you do, um, I'm sorry, you do almost see a, a, a homogenous mass of people with a few special people on top, which mm-hmm. is part of the issue. And um, you know, it might be worthwhile to recuperate a, a kind of English sense of difference, that, that sense of eccentricity, um, and a more of a, a celebration of eccentricity as something that's valuable in a society. John Stuart Mill makes a, a lot of this as a, a notion of the importance of tolerating people who have behaviors that are not comfortable with ours. It not just be, tolerating people, it's geniuses he's worried about and on liberty. Uh, I mean, that's why you have... What do you, you mean, have, worried about? He sees modern mo- democracy, you know, uh, undermining the foundations for the creation of genius. Those yeah, special people that make all of human history True, possible. but he also um, argues in terms of the exact word eccentricity, which I think is slightly different than genius. And he says that it's important to allow for eccentricity because we don't know what that person's odd solution might be. We might need that 
in, in, in the future. I see that in, I'm, I'm seeing that in a greater cultural context of English eccentricity, which allows for difference, but without sort of we all are this way. Um, it allows for meritocracy, but also allows for democracy, um, because the presumption isn't that there's a few select and a, and a you know, mass of not. I mean, we'll go back to the genius thing, but eccentricity, I think, is an important concept that might go. Which is closely back linked to, to genius uh, as well in the tradition. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. it isn't the yeah. same. Right go ahead. Okay. So, um, I love the idea of allowing yourself to misbehave. And I think that's a key to genius because good girls have mm. to, you know, to, good girls do which is not make, not make a mess. I mean, you can't collect stuff. You have to have, your brother has to have the bigger room and girls have to defer to guys. So I think there's a, a gender culture bias against women being geniuses. Mm. You have an expectation. You mentioned, um, it's so funny when you were talking about um, Mendelssohn's sister. Fanny. I couldn't remember her name. Fanny, of course. Uh, and I thought, I can't write Mendelssohn's sister and have to say who she is. And I, I believe that genius and identity, self-identity, self-awareness, are basically culturally transmitted more, 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 much more than genetically. And I, I, I love that idea going back to permission, permission. You have to give yourself permission to take yourself seriously. Also, skipping forward to the idea of the misfit, and the holy fool, which is somebody who can say the truth to the king, like King Lear's holy fool stuff. I would love to see plays, classics, where women are given the role of King Lear. So mm. let's see what she does with King Lear. You know, Meryl Streep, instead of acting like the fool that she, she's going to be coming out with a new movie on this. Um, this woman who couldn't sing. Of course, Meryl Streep has a beautiful voice. Oh, yeah. But I want to see Meryl Streep as King Lear. You know, let's, let's put on different costumes and give ourselves permission mm. to be just outrageously <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. One more, yes. Okay. So, um, I think that's actually, from my point of view, the biggest problem is that... Uh, we have to fit in male-dominated structures that was developed and created by male-dominated civilization. And, and even even um, uh, first group that established itself oppose male-dominated structures, like feminists, they're extremely hierarchical. For example, when I came to United States, I discovered that I am not enough feminist, although I'm a woman. You see, so so it's kind of this the whole structure of society, um, and um, uh, uh, lead to development of the uh, leaders and like something that we have lighthouses that we have to direct ourselves. And would, would you think that without, without, we could solve our problems without um, 
no changing all these structures because they are extremely powerful. You cannot, you cannot remove them. You see, you have to fit in them. Right. That's well, that's where, what, what greater good could we do? <laughs> uh, would it be by making women geniuses equal to men? Or would it be by getting rid of the category of genius? altogether. Um, I mean, which would accomplish uh, the greatest good for society? I kind of think the latter, <laughs> but that may be a minority opinion. I just think that doing away with that extremely hierarchical designation of some people at the expense of others, um, that's probably the bigger accomplishment than trying to get women equally into the ranks of the tiny minority at the top. I just question what would be accomplished by doing that. In, in part because I think too the way that geniuses function historically, is, you mentioned this earlier Joyce, is that the, kind of the, the dominant discourse that wins out in the 18th century is that genius is, is, is born, not made, right? That you don't acquire genius, you can't learn genius, that learning genius is somehow you know, inferior, Wrong. right? That's talent, but not genius. The genius, and therefore genius doesn't need institutions. Genius doesn't need good schools and early mm. uh, exposure to reading and so on and so forth. All the things that are necessary to cultivate human capital in a democratic way because genius always transcends that, right? And so the discourse then, right. then yeah. well, takes our attention so away from institutions. So a, we a see kind that of intellectual now. 1% will sure. do everything for us But we naturally. see that now in the, um, in the disaster of the SAT tests, yeah. which were designed to find the geniuses or the talented people outside of a, you know, the, um, a small, well-educated family elite. But in fact, of course, as we all know, to do well, one almost has to, um, you know, take a, take a lesson, take a test, take a that, unless you were two of my siblings who get 800s without being tutored. But there are some people, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work to have that test defined, you three geniuses, yeah. or you three talented people, no matter what your upbringing is. We just know it doesn't. Yeah. Do you think that the MacArthur Genius Award, is it responsible? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You know, huh. this to the does it do good for individuals hmm. or for us collectively? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, yes, right. We, don't, we none do of not us question have received that. one. We think they're stupid and ridiculous. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you have a question? Yeah, I, I think um, occasionally you've come close to this other uh, category uh, of uh, genius, but no one seems to have mentioned it. And. Uh, you know, genius is, is, is ontologically, it's an ontologically suspect notion. Uh, it's something that only exists uh, in society. And, and, th and that's where the definition uh, really needs to be, and we need to follow, uh, follow it through society. In other words, you know, consciously that way. Um, it seems to me that It's uh, this need for a savior, which, uh, which is really uh, one, of, one of the foundations of that. And, uh, uh, and I think it potentially explains a lot about uh, the notion. Certainly not everything. And I, 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 I would like to hear more about that. 
religion is your department. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm the religious mm -hmm. guy. No, but since, since it's Easter, I don't think... Well, the savior, the savior aspect, I think, goes back to that divine sense that, again, someone who is superhuman does work that the rest of us cannot do. I, I, I want to be a little bit more specific. In other words, it, it has to do, in other words, a genius arises when we need uh, a, someone to resolve a crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it may be a real crisis, mm -hmm. Or, or it may be just a perceived crisis. Uh, it seems to me one of the, the most recent uh, genius that I can think of is Andy Warhol, who hmm. What who crisis solved, did he solve? Who <laughs> solved, who, right? Who solved, a, a, right? Uh, an artistic crisis. Mm -hmm. It's true. true. One and that he identified, crisis yes. as well. True, he was a genius in that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question that, I mean, from the early 19th century, geniuses are spoken of as redemptive figures uh, who, um, who suffer and sacrifice mm. for the whole. And this is part of the mythology of genius in the Romantic period and then going forward, that you know, geniuses are often uh, despised by society because they, um, they're so far ahead of the times that they can't be understood and appreciated, so they suffer in silence, uh, and yet they're, they're working for uh, the redemption or the betterment of humanity, right? And so you, you get the cult of figure like Tasso, the great the Renaissance poet, right, who's institutionalized as, as, as a madman because society can't understand his genius. This is, you know, the, the Alan Turing film kind of plays on that, that idea, too, of the genius who, 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 is, uh, who is literally persecuted, right, for, for his eccentricity, for his strangeness, his queerness in this case, right, being different, being literally being gay, um, but also because uh, the, the society of the time cannot understand him. So geniuses suffer, become martyrs. Lamartine, the, the French poet, says that all genius is modern, uh, is, is a martyr, tout génie est martyr. Um, and uh, there, there is no, no question that that's part of the discourse. Becomes very but, but, I think, but I think what's being said is that, if I understand you um, correctly, that in a sense, I, someone has to solve a problem before they're acknowledged kind of as the genius. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can even think of the 19th century there. Victor Hugo is a genius, but he has solved artistic problems, he solved political problems, he solved the problems of rallying a certain group of French people around a certain idea about democracy and then Napoleon, about the nation itself. And he embodies um, a people, right? Yeah. Whom he's yeah, regenerating. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another, the, the, the person who has solved the, the problem, whatever it is, has that, is given the license of being the genius as opposed to seven-year-old Victor Hugo. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, but there's also a mis historical mismatch that there are plenty of crises that never get solved. The, the genius or the savior never appears. No. <laughs> also, um, I think, again, this scenario is very gendered, uh, that the suffering savior, uh, sure. who is the genius figure, mm. tends to be male. Women are just supposed to suffer, so it doesn't necessarily right. play out in the so, same way. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no question. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. We want to end on that note.